Well, we're uh, three weeks into a series working through the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi. And as a part of this, since it is the last book, we have been reviewing our Old Testament history. If we can, by the way, this is our history. This is our history. We are the chosen people of God. We are his people. And so if we go back, when we read these stories and these things, you need to understand you're reading your story. This is our story. And so anyway, we're, we're, we're doing all this review. And so uh, we're going to just uh, go back and do this little review that we're doing at the beginning of each uh, service. If you weren't here, the other times that we've done this, just hang in there and, and, and watch <laughs> and participate as you can. Eventually, if you keep coming, you'll get it because we're going to do this until we're sick to death of it because uh, repetition is the key to learning, right? So, all right, here we go. So here's our little thing we're doing at the beginning with hand signals and you fill in the blank when I pause if you can. Genesis chapters one and two tell us about creation. Chapter three of Genesis tells us about the, that's your, that's your cue, the temptation, okay, like the serpent, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter four, Cain and Abel. Chapter four, one more time, Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter five, Genealogies, kind of boring. Chapter six, seven, and eight, Noah and the. We always get that one. Chapter nine, Noah after the flood. And a little rainbow action, okay? Uh, chapter 10 again, Genealogies. Chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, Go into the land I will show you, and I will make you a great and mighty nation, and I will make your name great. Adding a line, and I will bless you to be a blessing to others. Can we say that part? There's two passages of Scripture that talk about the call of Abraham. One talks about making him great. The other talks about making a blessing, blessing him so he'd be a blessing to the nation. So he said, I will bless you to be a blessing to the nation. So Abraham, remember this one, packed his bags and he and his family went up around the, he learned this in school, the Fertile Crescent. And they came to a town called Haran, which was barren, thumbs down, barren. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? That's one of my favorite ones because that's like, have you ever been there? So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. <clears throat> they didn't have any children. Where am I? I could go off script, but that would be dangerous. And now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was the was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? 
12 sons, 10 fingers, two earlobes, 12. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to walk like an Egyptian. Right, okay. Sent him into Egypt where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land. And the whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years, where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died, and then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time. And so he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive and the people began to cry out to God saying, God, get us out of this mess. Let's do that one together. They began to cry out to God saying, God, get us out of this mess. So God called a man named Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. (laughs) So God began to show his power and through Moses, he unleashed How many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take anymore. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses gathered the people. Moses gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea. You guys have seen Cecil B. DeMille's version of, okay. He led them through the Red Sea and up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies. He sent twelve spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. So they came back. And how many leaders did they send in? They sent in twelve leaders, but how many came back and, and were against it? Ten leaders came back and said, no go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders, and as a group, they said, no go. That happens a lot throughout the history of God's people. Anyway, so God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over die. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount, I can't do this today, Ah, Nebo, Mount Nebo, where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. God bless his faith. Joshua led the people through, through the, what's, not the Red Sea this time, through the Jordan River and they divided up the land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economical, and spiritual ups and downs. Seven social, economical, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges, God give us a king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David and the third king was Solomon. You guys are starting to get some of this. They ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called 
Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was also sometimes called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was, anybody besides Jeremy this week? He's been getting it. Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten. And there were how many tribes in the south? Two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And how many good kings in the south? Eight. In 722 B.C., remember that date, in 722 B.C., King Shalmaneser, say that three times fast, the fifth, came down from, anyone? Assyria, and defeated the northern kingdom, Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Can we do that part together? He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon, Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians. We had the Assyrians, now the Persians. And the Persian king sent three guys back to help reestablish Judah, three leaders. Their names were, what are those three leaders that we read about throughout the Old Testament who he sent back? first two have a Z in their name. I don't know if that helps at all. The first one is Zerubbabel. The second one is Ezra and then Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple. That was Zerubbabel mostly. Reestablished communication with God. That was Ezra. And they rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi And he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst on the scene shouting about Jesus Christ, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, great job. You just covered the whole Old Testament. Let's quickly review what we've covered in the book of Malachi so far. From the first few verses, we heard God say, Remember my love. Remember my love. The very first thing God says in this book is this. I have loved you. That's the opening sentence of God's address to his people through Malachi. I have loved you. This is what God has to say to his people. This is what God has to say to us. Remember that one of the unique features of Malachi is that almost none of it comes to us in the voice of the prophet, but almost every verse is presented in the voice of Yahweh, of God, and it's recorded as a direct quotation from him. That's the reason I'm calling this series, God Says, because even though all the Bible is inspired by God, there is reason to take notice when a prophet directly quotes God. Malachi simply tells us what God says. So the first thing God says is the same thing that he always says first. And that is, I have loved you. He starts with his love, and so should we. People first need to understand that God loves them so much that he died on the cross to earn that forgiveness and salvation. Those of us who've already believed and received that love, we need to remember it in a personal way, because when we do that, when we actually hear God, not the preacher, not Malachi, but God say to our hearts, I have loved you, it utterly changes us from the inside out. And folks, we all need to be changed. Nothing could be more clear 
after the last two years. We need renewal. We need revival. We need the life-changing love of God. And that's why the very next thing God addresses through Malachi is worship. The place where revival and life change often begins for the people of God. You can find it throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, we look back to Pentecost. God says, my people need to rectify their worship. That was the topic for the second sermon in this series, and we only covered half of the material. So today, we'll continue that discussion. But first, let me speak from the heart for a minute. If you don't think something needs to change in terms of our corporate worship, you have somehow missed what God has been saying. The status quo is simply not good enough. Our worship is not what it should be. And I'm not talking about anything external like our instruments or our sound system or our choice of songs. The rectification that needs to be made is in our hearts. God is speaking to Go Church right now. And He is speaking about our corporate worship. He is saying that our worship needs to be rectified. When we, the people of this church, read the scripture together in a moment. And as I preach that scripture, I pray that you will actually hear God speak. Because we need to hear what He is saying talked a lot about music last time and how we worship through songs, how biblical that is. Music is a huge part of any biblical worship service. However, corporate worship is also actively listening to the preaching of the Word of God. And worship is what happens when we pray together. And worship is what happens when we observe baptisms or the Lord's Supper together and other things. But regardless of the specific tool, and we have some different tools now than they had then, Regardless of the specific tool, I believe God is telling us that the worship we have together every Sunday needs rectification. To be honest, it probably always will. But we can make progress if we hear and respond to God. Now, also keep in mind that God has given us a vision for this church. And the beginning point of this vision is worship. Signified by the phrase loving God at the, at the top. It starts at 12 o'clock up there. That's where this whole thing starts. Loving God. That's worship, really. When we learn to love God better, if you follow around, you'll see that we, we will learn to love each other better in the church. And we love each other better. We'll have what is needed to love our neighbors. That is everyone else. Better. Corporate worship is the fueling station of the church. This is where it all begins. The starting point of what can become a powerful cycle. Our relationship with God is the beginning point of everything else we do together. And all of it is empowered only to the extent that we are connected to God through worship. We can do nothing in our own strength. This is important. Now, let's get into the scripture and see what God says today. From Malachi... Chapter 1 and verse 5. Malachi chapter 1 verse 5. God says, your eyes will see this. Looking back to the previous verses, see what? God's special love for you. 
Your eyes will see this love, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. That if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. We could, we could really sub in there the worship service of the Lord. It, it's exactly what he's getting at. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive it? any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, <clears throat> even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and then every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So from this text, I've pulled out six principles, principles, often from the Old Testament, what we get is principles. We get six principles here to rectify our worship. We covered the first three last time, and we will cover the last three this morning. Let's review the first three from last week. The first principle we covered is this. Worship is our response to God's love. Verse 5, as I mentioned, flows from verses 2 through 4, where God powerfully illustrates His very special, even exclusive love for His children. Then in verse 5, God says, when you see that love, your response will be to magnify my name, which is worship. In fact, the rest of the passage is about appropriate and inappropriate responses of worship. If our worship is going to be rectified, we will need to really see God's amazing love for us and thereby begin to respond appropriately. The second principle comes in verse 6 and it's reiterated in verse 14. Number two, worship is informed by the identity of God. In these verses, God's presented as father, as master, and as king. The expected responses to those aspects of God's identity are honor, respect, and fear. The God we worship is worthy of these responses because of who he is. If our worship is to be rectified, it will need to be informed by the true identity of God. We must see the Lord and realize that He is completely worthy of our worship. The third principle, and really the overarching theme of this passage, is that half-hearted worship is offensive to God. God says, I would rather you lock the doors of the church building and never come back than to continue giving me half-hearted, half-cooked, less-than-best worship. 
Singing a song, for instance, without engaging your heart might be more offensive to God than if you didn't even show up. I think that's a very fair application. As Isaiah records, when our hearts are not in it, God says, bring these worthless offerings to me no longer. The better response, of course, is not to just quit at worship, but rather to start doing it right. And that means doing it wholeheartedly. I made some practical suggestions last week that I hope might help, but let me just make one more practical suggestion today. If you really want to work on your worship, consider moving closer to the front. I'm not trying to tell you what to do if you don't want to do it. Not a huge deal, but just throwing out an idea that might help if you have trouble engaging in worship. So we covered the first 10 verses last time, and today we'll cover verse 11 through 14. How many of you think half as many verses will mean a sermon half as long? (laughs) Right. So going on to the fourth principle, uh, let's pick it up in verse 11 where God says, verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The principle here is that the mission of God is fueled by pure worship. The mission of God is fueled by pure worship. Verse 11 is a turning point in this passage. It's easy to miss what God is saying. Considering the context, God is saying that when our worship is not an appropriate response to both the love of God and the identity of God, it also fails to accomplish the mission of God. See, the mission of God is fueled by pure worship, but the mission of God is hampered when worship is impure, and specifically here, when it is half-hearted or empty or uninformed. I share this principle often when we talk about God's vision for our church, when it comes to his purposes for the church. If you look inside the circle, inside the arrows, those words, it starts with worshiping starts with worshiping. And what's the ending point in that circle all the way around? Missioneering. Missioneering. But there's one more thing to notice there, if you can look at the circle. And that is that missioneering winds up flowing back into worshiping. It's a cycle. And that is because the real goal of our mission is to make more worshipers of God or more specifically, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Hopefully everyone has graduated from the immature thinking that missions is only a reference to what missionaries do in other countries. No, to be on mission is the very definition of following Jesus. Every single church ought to be on mission, locally, regionally, and globally, or else it will not be functioning as the church of Jesus Christ. That is true, but we also need to remember that our mission is fueled by worship. Worship's where it starts. I'm not on the same page as John Piper uh, at times, but he's certainly brilliant. And uh, I do like the way he explains the relationship of missions and worship. He writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I completely agree. 
And it follows that if our worship is weak, our missionary efforts, locally, regionally, and globally, will be weak as well. Because in not fully experiencing the greatness of God ourselves, we will not be adequately driven to bring others to experience the greatness of God. Look back at the text with me. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting. This is a Hebrew idiom, and it has nothing to do with time. This is about geography. The point is that God's will and his plan for his name to be great everywhere on planet earth, from where the sun rises to where it sets, which is, of course, an infinite loop. From where the sun rises to where it sets. It's an infinite loop covering the entire globe. This is about the global mission of God. Next, God says, my name will be great among the nations. Again, it's a reference to God's missional purpose. That his name will be glorified not only among those who are already the people of God. That's not God's heart. He wants to do more. But among every people group everywhere. And then he says, in every place which is to reiterate the same point just in case someone hasn't yet understood that God means to suggest that the entire earth is our mission field. Now, if you look at the text, the next thing God tells us is what will happen if, is what will happen in all of these locations, all around the globe, among all nations, and in every place, what? Well, he references two specific worship practices of that time, incense and grain offerings. But the heart of it is that in every place among all people groups, there will be pure worship. And why will it be pure? Because ultimately God's name will be seen as great and he will be revered appropriately in all nations. This is a vision for a future reality which we are called to participate in achieving. This is the goal of missions. And God will do it. God will do it. Through us or through others. And frankly, in the case of the original audience, mostly it wound up being through others. They didn't accept the challenge. They didn't get it right. As we can see in what happened during the next 400 years when Judaism became even more inward. Just as the church is in danger of becoming today. What is the mission of God? His mission is to be glorified or magnified in every place, in every nation, by those whom he has chosen, by those whom he foreknew, and those he loved with a special love from eternity, by people who believe in him from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But how does he accomplish this? God wants to use his people as messengers to help bring this about. This is the mission of the church which Jesus made abundantly clear in Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, all the commissions, several other places. I really like the one in Mark, which just says, tell everyone everywhere <laughs> that, that uh, the gospel, share the gospel every, with everyone everywhere. But notice the connection between pure worship and the accomplishment of the mission of God. Look at the connection between pure worship and accomplishment of the mission of God. On the one hand, worship will be pure when every eye sees who he really is at the consummation of history. However, at that point, it'll be too late for those who did not have faith on the day of salvation, which is now. And if God were only interested in the ultimate consummation, what would be his point in attempting to correct the worship of his people in these verses? If he were concerned only with the automatically rectified worship that will happen at the end when Christ returns and all are driven to their knees, then what would be the point 
in these instructions. The fact is that God is always interested in the now. He is the I am, not just the I will be. And God is saying that right now his name is not being glorified in all the places it could be if their worship was as pure as it should be. You hear me? He's saying that his name is not being glorified in all the places it could be if their worship was as pure as it should be. God says, if the people who know me won't even worship appropriately or with purity, there is little chance that other nations and people who do not know me are going to worship me in purity either. However, just so you know, whether you get with the program today or not, someday all the nations will worship me with pure worship. That's what God's saying. You see the relevance in this for the church today? We find ourselves in the same position, do we not? The purposes of God will not be thwarted. The only question is whether or not you and I will get to be involved with what God is doing or whether we might even somehow mysteriously slow him down. For the record, the case that we can temporarily get in the way and slow things down can absolutely be made from Scripture. Romans chapter 10 is pretty clear, for example. God's people can either help accomplish His mission or we can slow it down. I'm afraid much of the church in America is doing just that, slowing down the mission of God. We need revival. How could we possibly slow down the mission of God? Because God predetermined that our choices would matter. The heart of this verse in context is this. You can either worship me in purity and therefore be a witness to the nations, or you can continue in impure, empty worship, and I will get my message to the nations some other way eventually. Either way, my mission will be accomplished and my name is going to be great everywhere. The question is, are you going to be used as my agents, or are you going to continue to make it harder for people to see my greatness because of your lackluster, inappropriate, empty, impure worship? Let's make this personal. If you are a committed part of Go Church, ask yourself, if everyone worshiped like I do, and someone from the nations, that is someone who does not yet know God in Christ, walked into one of our service, services, would the purity and the power and, and the meaningfulness of my worship potentially inspire that person to join in the chorus in order to make great the name of God or would he or she more likely sit through our service unaffected if everyone worshiped like me? Beyond this, of course, there is a cumulative effect. If most of us are doing what we should be doing in worship, our church will begin to see mission accomplishment even through our worship because the Spirit of God moves when the people of God truly worship together. Anybody ever experienced that? <laughs> I have. Of course, most of the nations are not going to walk into our church building or where we meet. So let's put this another way. Is your worship such that it makes you leave this place on fire to tell others about the greatness of God, particularly in what he has done through the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ? If, if your worship does not fuel the mission of God in your life, then your worship may not be pure. This principle is clear within our text. The mission of God is fueled by pure worship. 
And this theme is actually sprinkled throughout the passage. We can see it in verse 14 and other places. But for the sake of time, let's just look back at verse 5 once more. Your eyes will see this, my amazing love. And you will say, let's get this thing beyond our walls. The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God says, your eyes will see my amazing love and you will magnify or worship me And then look at the last phrase, beyond the border of Israel. Understand that for the most part, this had not yet happened when these words were written. In fact, the opposite had occurred. At this point in history, as far as we know, Yahweh was only being worshipped in Jerusalem, in the nearby area. And that was about it. Even the rest of Judah had been taken over by other nations or people groups who did not worship the God of Israel. The northern kingdom, as we say every week now, where 10 of the tribes had lived, had been overrun by unbelievers for a couple centuries by now. Jerusalem and the immediate areas, all that was left in terms of people or a nation who were worshiping Yahweh. All that remains at the time of Malachi is this tiny little group, an island in a sea of paganism, the remnant of Israel. And yet God is saying, if You will purify your worship. You will see my name magnified beyond your borders like never before. Pure worship fuels the mission of God. You may have noticed I added a line to our Old Testament overview when it came to the call or the covenant of Abraham. I was reminded recently God not only said that he would make Abraham a great nation, but they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, he said. All of them. That's, that's, I could, boy, I could go there, Mike, I could go somewhere with that. All the families of the earth, that there would be a blessing to all of them. And see, God's mission has never changed. His mission has never changed. The church has been grafted into the family tree of Abraham for the same reason, in order to make great the name of the Lord to the nations. But if we're not truly magnifying his name among ourselves, what hope do we have of magnifying his name beyond the borders of our church building? The mission of God is fueled by pure worship. Let's move on to the fifth principle, which is this. A critical spirit renders our worship unacceptable. Look at verses 12 through 13. God says, but you are profaning it, my name, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what's lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Some of this reiterates principle number three from last time that half-hearted worship is offensive to God. However, here we have something a little bit more specific in that regard. And this is very relevant for our time and for our church. We are a critical culture. We are taught to constantly assess and discuss what we like or don't like, aren't we? I think part of this comes from the fact that we have about 9,000 options for everything from TV channels to charcoal to chocolate to churches. What kind of food do you like? What kind of music do you like? What kind of preaching do you like? And this is how we define ourselves, by our likes and dislikes. I do not believe this has always been the case, not to this degree. Meanwhile, we're constantly being courted to like this or like that or dislike this or dislike that. We even do this with people, sadly enough. If we don't do it with people we see every day, we certainly do it with politicians, athletes, musicians, and so on. We actually divide 
over who or what we like or don't like. You realize that? And if we're going to divide and separate from each other over likes and dislikes, then by God, we better know what our opinions are about all these things, or else we won't know which side to be on. Right? So how does this apply to worship in the church? Well, let's try this. It's too loud. It's too soft. I hear both of those complaints, believe it or not. Neither side can believe the other side said what they said. Both. Someone says, there aren't enough hymns. Someone else says, what was that weird song in the middle? Is that what they call a hymn? We could go on for days about our likes and dislikes, couldn't we? I like pastors who walk around when they preach, come down the aisle and stuff. Well, I like pastors who stand still. I like short sermons. I like long sermons. Okay, nobody says that. <laughs> Would you get the idea? I believe God would say today that if you have a critical spirit when it comes to the service of worship, the table of worship, the, the place where we gather, the thing that we do when we come to worship, your worship is unacceptable to him. How do I get that from this text? Look at the attitude of these priests. What do you see? I see a critical spirit. They're sick and tired of the tools of worship, so they've started to criticize those tools. For them, the tools of worship involved the sacrificial system, including slaughtering animals and burning incense and other rituals, which all contained symbolic meaning that were designed to help them get their hearts engaged in worship. They also used music, including singers and instrumentalists, by the way. This passage doesn't mention every tool they used for worship, but we know that singing and prayer and the teaching of the Word of God were also part of their corporate worship experience. And here we see that those involved with making all this worship happen are sick to death of it all. They basically think it all just stinks to high heaven, and because they feel that way, it does. Maybe one of the guitars, and yes, they had guitar-like instruments, was out of tune. Uh, maybe they didn't like the distortion. At one, one time, somebody told me, there's something wrong with this guitar. I was like, no, it's, kind of, it's supposed to sound that way. <laughs> maybe they were sick of the songs. Maybe there was a song they used to sing. They used to sing this one song, and now they don't sing it anymore. Maybe they thought the songs were too slow or too fast or too old or too new. Maybe they thought the priestly garments were not as nice as they used to be. Maybe the video didn't play when it was supposed to or the PowerPoint was all screwed up. The point is that their attitude was off. They were sick of the whole program until finally they disdainfully sniffed at worship. God was not amused. He said they were profaning His name. And indicated that he would not receive such worship from them because their spirit was critical and negative rather than reverent and worshipful. They also said, my, how tiresome it is. You see that? Uh-oh. If you regularly help with setup and teardown around here, you have had these moments. How many curtains do we have to fold? I've certainly had these moments, but hey, at least we aren't having to uh, butcher like hundreds of animals every Sunday, right? That's where they were coming from. And God did not appreciate their gripes. I'm pretty sure he would feel the same way about our gripes, wouldn't he? If God and his church, is God and his church worth the work we put in on Sundays? You better believe it. I feel sure I'm not the only one who needed this reminder. Been three, a little over, but about three and a half years, set up and tear down. We're, we're there. 
we need this reminder. Listen, a critical spirit is a costly vice in this case. Because God will not accept worship from someone who is being critical about worship. That's what's there. He wouldn't accept it then, and he won't accept it now. Let's go to the sixth principle, which is this. God will hold you responsible for your worship. God will hold you responsible for your worship. Verse 14, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Now, I realize this is specifically about what kind of animal should be brought for the sacrifice, and we no longer sacrifice animals because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. But surely it's not a stretch to apply this to our worship today, since the point is not really about the animal, but the heart of the worshiper. And we can certainly see that the worshiper himself or herself will be held accountable for his or her own worship. We can see this principle throughout the passage. But particularly in this verse, God shifts his gaze from the priests that are leading the worship to the people themselves. He's saying to the people that they don't get to absolve themselves from responsibility simply because the priests, the people up front, are not doing a good job in their leadership role. Actually, his strongest language yet is reserved to condemn the individual who shows up to worship as a swindler. He says such a one is cursed. And what is a swindler in this context? When it comes to worship, a swindler is basically a fake, a mask wearer, a cheat, someone trying to get by with something. Why would a person bother bringing a blemished animal, a stolen animal, otherwise less than sacrificial animal for the worship service? Why bring something half-hearted or empty or impure to God? Why fake it? Well, we tend to want to keep up appearances, don't we? Don't we? Is this me? I don't think so. Jesus spoke about this quite a bit. If you'll recall from our recent series through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said those who give their gifts and pray their prayers and do their good works in order to be seen by others have their reward in full. In other words, their so-called acts of worship mean nothing to God. Why? Because they were swindlers. They just wanted to look like they loved and served and worshiped God when their true motivation was really all about me. They were swindling God in order to gain a certain persona before others. And folks, that is a dangerous thing to do. But let's get real. We've all been swindlers in worship before, haven't we? Or haven't you ever bowed your head and not prayed? Haven't you ever sung a song while your thoughts were actually a million miles away? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which word and art and evermore shall be. By the way, King James English does not necessarily make us more reverent. Just a bonus point. Regardless, let me tell you, some of the words we have sung without reverence, without heartfelt acknowledgement of the presence of God, without heart engagement are such that we should have been struck dead. We've all been swindlers in worship at times. We're not perfect. Thankfully, we are under grace in Christ. We are not ultimately cursed because of Jesus in whom there is no condemnation. But surely we never want to act like someone who is. Like one who would swindle God in worship. So how would you define most of your worship? Heartfelt and fervent or blah, blah, blah. Do you mostly worship with authenticity or are you more of a swindler much of the time, if you're honest? This word cursed speaks of separation. 
In this context, it means both to be cut off from God and be cut off from the community of his people. Do you worship like one who truly knows God and is his son or daughter through Christ? This word cursed also meant to be delivered over to misfortune. And even though if you know Jesus, you can't ever be cut off completely. You can be disciplined, right? You can miss out on blessings here and rewards in heaven. You can receive curses in the sense of less blessing. And that is if you try to swindle God or offer less than he deserves. Strong language, strongest in the passage. The reason for God's condemnation of their worship here is more than the fact that they're just doing it wrong. The reason they're being cursed is because their offering defiles God and it profanes his name. That's what he says. If the offering is blemished or not their best, what does that say to the congregation and to the nations about the one receiving it? Hear this. You are responsible for the testimony of your worship. Nobody else, just you. If through Christ you really know the holy God, Lord of all creation, Will you offer him less than best or something fake or something that actually makes him look not all that great to others? Would doing so not be the exact opposite of worship? If it is a blessing to God when our worship is pure and real, does it not curse God when our worship is impure and fake? And if we curse God, will we not in turn be cursed? Or at the very least, even as New Testament believers, be less blessed? God says, cursed are the swindlers in my corporate service of worship. That's really what he says here. It's a serious warning and should not be ignored by the church, even though we are under the new covenant in Christ. Perhaps some of us need to rectify our worship after all. Maybe all of us. Maybe none of us is close to where we should be. Maybe if enough of us repented, we could have revival that we talk so much about. Maybe if the church were revived, we could see spiritual awakening and healing for our land. It starts with you. And it starts with me. What is God saying? What has God said? He's most certainly spoken today. His word does not return void. If he's spoken to you and you were listening, you know it. You know it and I know it. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to respond to what you've said. The deepest place of worship is surrender. Even in this moment, we are worshiping. If our heart is engaged and we're responding to your word. Lord, we surrender. Hopefully, every, everyone or most of us are in agreement. You can see our hearts. We need to grow in our worship. We need some rectification. We need to remember your love better. We need to identify who you are in our worship. We need to see you like Isaiah saw you and fall to our knees. Change our hearts, God. And for those in this room who maybe have never come to you through faith in Christ, the only way that we can come before your throne Maybe today's the day. Maybe you've already been working. Maybe somebody came today, and even though this message was mostly for believers, you've already been working. Maybe somebody today wants to just 
surrender their whole life to Jesus Christ, to become your child, to begin a relationship with you that is a worship relationship. For such a one, God, I pray that in this moment they might just have that spark of faith that you're involved with, your spirit draws, we must respond, there is a choice, and I pray that that person, that today would be the day they would surrender to Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of their life, that you would come in, change them, and never be the same. God, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for the reminders of your, your word. Help us to become the church that you have in mind, which is so desperately needed in this dark and weary land. Give us a light that we never thought we could have. Make us a church we never imagined for your glory, for your kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.